What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Caesar Kuriyama. Caesar, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat. You are the creator of an app called One Second Every Day, or 1SE for short. And every day for the past eight years, I think, you've recorded... I'm at, I'm at eight over eight and a half at this point. Eight and a half years of every single day you record a one-second video of what's going on in your life. And you stitch it all together. So every year you have basically a six-minute video. So now I guess you're like something like 50 minutes of video for the last eight and a half years of your life. Where you can easily go back and watch everything you're doing. Uh, this is now recently my favorite app. So I've got like eight <laughs> seconds of video. <laughs> I can see what's going on for the last week. But it's pretty cool, man. I really love what you're doing. And now it's not just you. It's many millions of people have used one second every day and are recording one second videos of their life every single day. Why did you start this? What set you on this journey? Uh, so, you know, my background is in like uh, visual effects and animation. I worked like agencies and advertising uh, at the beginning of my career after I went to art school. I was always doing film stuff, video stuff, graphic design stuff, photography. Uh, I, I kind of dabbled in a lot of different mediums beyond animation. Animation was kind of like just how I ended up in art school accidentally. Yeah. Um, I, I was a computer science guy. I thought I was going to go do computer science stuff. And I started doing animations. I started winning these like local kind of animation things in high school. And I thought, oh, I want to be an animator because I want to tell stories. And then I went to that's how I ended up in art school. Took a little bit of time working in advertising to realize, oh, like I'm not actually in control of my of the ideas that I wish I was working on. I'm just kind of like executing on other people's ideas. And so I kind of became disenfranchised with, with it pretty quickly. But that was a that, that's kind of how I got started and kind of didn't re- know what my exit strategy was out of working in advertising. And then one day I saw this TED talk by Stefan Sackmeister, who is an alumni of my art school, Pratt Institute here in Brooklyn. And he gave a talk called The Power of Time Off. And it like instantly like changed my life. And he, I, you know, he basically talked about how every seven years he closes down his studio and takes a one year reti- mini retirement. And he's going to do that. And he's just going to retire five years later, but he's going to have like these little retirements happening throughout his life because when he's old, you know, he may not have the energy or the capacity to do some of the things that he can do when he's young. And that really, really hit a chord with me because I was working 100 hour work weeks all the time. I was, you know, I wasn't sometimes. Yeah. uh, You know, we would be on deadlines and I would literally work until like 2 a.m. Sometimes literally sleep at the studio. Sometimes, uh, you know, a car would take me home. I'd be up at nine. I'd be back at work at 10. And I would just repeat, rinse and repeat for like two or three weeks sometimes if we really were on a crazy deadline. What was Um, so important that you needed to work 100 hours on it? Deadlines. We were, I feel like we were famous for taking on the project, like the tight deadlines that every other studio would just laugh and say, like, there's no way we could do that. And we would say, we will, we'll do it. But we would charge crazy money for it. And that Mm -hmm. money would basically go towards overtime. And it was just, yeah, it was just like, oh, we got to get this commercial out by, you know, by the holiday season or something in this case. It it was just whatever it took to get it done. And that almost always took just like staying up all night for. And then, of course, the next looming deadline uh, right on the other end of the other side of that one project when we finally, you know, and so sometimes it was just months and months of that. And it broke me. Uh, And frankly, I'm kind of grateful that it broke me, like because uh, it broke me at at an age when I was still capable of like 
pausing like and re, re doing something like figuring out how to do something else with my life because i was like i can't this is not sustainable this is not how i want to this is not how i want to spend my time um you at least getting paid well in compensation for working these hundred hour weeks sir totally i i up until <laughs> i think up until this year i was i was still making more in advertising than i was like like uh, like running this company because uh, we were you know, we've we've been bootstrapped for for this entire you know journey, and we, you know me and my co-founder were paying us, ourselves as little as possible so that we could make the next hire, make the next hire, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so, yeah, it was a uh, yeah. Th- those were lucrative times, but luckily I was never, you know, I, I ended up saving my money, and that's what allowed me to quit my job eventually, so I could I could take a year off from work, and that's how I landed on one second every day. If it wasn't for that, I might have you know gotten a better apartment and like. You know, bought fancier clothes and yeah. got used to like what I was making. But instead, I was, I'm pretty frugal and I'm pretty. I don't. Luckily, like I, you know, the only thing I basically splurge on is like tech stuff. Like you know, like a drone came out, I want it. You know, it's like that's that's the only thing I'll I'll spend on that. Maybe I don't need to, but I do. But basically, this this TED talk essentially kind of convinced me that I needed to, in order to really figure out my exit strategy, I needed to make like build time for myself. Like it wasn't about figuring out what I was going to do after advertising. It was, I needed to buy myself enough time to figure it out. And my headspace was, you know, 90% work. And so like, there wasn't a lot of headspace left in my brain for me to think about like, Oh, maybe I should be an entrepreneur. Like it never, you know, and so it never really crossed my mind. And so uh, what I did was I literally went up to accounting as soon as that power of time off talk was over. I said, I just opened up the savings account. I need to put half my paycheck into this account from now on. And I'm not gonna. And I didn't touch it for two years. And literally, I gave my job like a you know two years heads up. I was like, I'm quitting my job uh, in two years. Basically, will live off half my paycheck and figured out how to do that no matter what. And so, uh, just you know, drank out of a flask. You know, when I was hanging out with friends, like cut off cable and all the things. It just you know very bare minimum lifestyle. Um, but that bought me a year. And leading up to that year, I knew that I had this lifelong frustration with my memory. I've always wanted keep a, a diary or a journal and I could never keep the habit. I would do it for a couple of days. I'd stop. And, uh, you know, and I thought, man, this might be the only year of my life that I ever get to like have total freedom. So like, I may not be able to pull, <laughs> I probably won't be able to pull a seven sack and just take a year off every seven years. This might be it. Let's make a count. And I don't want to turn uh, 40 one day and like not really remember the day-to-day of that year off and so i i was like what's the little breadcrumb that i can leave for myself every day where i'll never forget a day of this year you know no matter how old i get and i realized well the iphone had gotten pretty good uh writing was never my medium but the iphone had like was shooting hd now it was like the iphone 4 open 4s and i realized oh like this is like I've, I've always like videos always been my medium. Like I should be journaling with video, but also I was somebody who would go on vacation and like take a million photos and a mil, you know, with a tripod and, and, and everything. And, and it would, um, you know, it all end up in a hard drive that I never had time to look at. So I thought I should record. What is the minimal amount I need to record every day to still give me enough of a memory trigger. And so that's how I landed on one second. And I think my background in animation helped because I realized that a second was actually a pretty substantial amount of time. A lot of people will think it's like a photograph, but it's like there's a lot more to it, not to mention sound is a big memory trigger. And so I also wanted the final product to be easy to to rewatch. And so like landing at one second per day meant that every year came out to six minutes. 
And six minutes is like that sweet spot of like, I can always make six minutes of time to like relive a year of my life. But if yeah. it's like 30 minutes, like that's like, like how often am I going to sit around and be like watch 30 minutes of my life, you know? And so the idea was just the bare minimum. And that came to one second. Uh, and that's how I landed on one second. Um, and that was uh, meant to just be a one year project for that year off so that I'll never forget that year off. But even just like after a couple of weeks, I realized what a positive impact it was having on my day-to-day life that I thought, well, I should actually do this for the rest of my life. Like, why would I only do this for a year? That's how it came about. Yeah, I've been using the app for the last week, and it's taught me that my life is pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to figure out like a new second I can record that I haven't recorded. That's just not you know me sitting at my computer. And I can totally see how doing this and getting this habit makes you want to live a more interesting, varied life. You mentioned taking a year off from your job. And then the talk that you mentioned that inspired you by Stefan Sagmeister, he also was taking these years off from his job every seven years. And he would basically go on a sabbatical. Uh, What is it that makes that year off successful for you? Well, the thing that he said that really resonated with me, uh, among other things, is he talked about how all the work that he was doing you know, on a date for seven years, right. Of working at the studio, like his creative work was the work for clients. It was like, he was being creative, but in, in pursuit of an, of a, of like, you know, selling something or whatever it is, right. Like it's a job, right. You're being creative because like you're being hired to be creative about, about a particular, you know, company or brand or, or whatnot. And that year off allows him and all his employees to essentially have a year where they can be creative for just whatever they want to do, just whatever is actually just their version of exercising the, their creativity. And that is essentially how I felt because I always had, I'm never short on ideas. I have a mil, I have a, you know, I have an Evernote that's like got a thousand ideas that I'm just happy to give away. And my day-to-day life was just spending it on working, being creative, quote unquote, on things that like was in lieu of some brand or some, some right, project. For other people. And, and so it was like one second every day is a perfect example of like, I was just doing that for me as like, how do I, want, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to finally keep a journal. Like, what are the things that work for me that's actually going to get me to not do the journal thing for like three days and then stop? Like I always do. And so I was like, all right, I'm a video guy. I should be video. Like I needed to be short. I needed to be this. I needed to be that. And, you know, all that essentially came about of a, my frustration and my, my pain point, but it also came about for me having the headspace to actually ex- like to do that. And, you know, what I mentioned earlier about like, when you like 90, when you're just like, so much of your headspace is taken up by work, let's just say 60% of your headspace is taken up by work. Like what happens when you remove that? And you just have this empty 60% of your headspace? Like, what do you fill it with? Right? And that's where the magic comes. Like you need time to let that linger and see what happens, see what manifests, you know, and that's a, that's the thing that like, was so powerful about that, that year off was, giving your headspace emptiness and then who knows how you'll fill it. You just live your life and gravitate towards whatever, whatever you gravitate towards, you know, cause now you have free time. So I took a year off when I started ND hackers and I took that year off not to have a sabbatical, not to just enjoy life and remember every day. I took it off basically with the express purpose of starting a profitable business so that I would never mm. have to get a job in the future. And what I did when my headspace was cleared was I spent six months basically just messing around, not building anything that was serious, nothing that worked. And then after I saw that I drained half my bank account, I got very serious. And I was like, oh, I need to actually figure out what's going to make money. You didn't do that. You didn't have that, that plan when you started. Uh, and yet you ended up coming up with this idea for an app. 
how did you eventually turn it into a business and then, you know, get out of the situation where you had to go back to this job? So I, I actually had an almost identical journey to you. So I did not intend to just squander the year off. I actually did intend to figure out, okay, I have a year to figure out how do I do, how do I make a living? How do I change the trajectory of my life so I don't just work in advertising on things that I'm not passionate about until, mm. you know, I die. So, and I, in the first couple of months, like I've made very little progress. I, I, I didn't know what I needed to do. I played around with some ideas. I, I directed a music video that did really well before, be, like, a, like a couple of years before I quit my job. And I did that in my spare time, which was, took me 14 months to put together that music video because I had very little spare time, but it ended up doing really well, like a millions of views. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a music video director. Maybe I just need to direct a couple of more music videos to build a name for myself. And, and so that was one idea. But I had a whole bunch of ideas. I even had an idea of going back to like graduate school to do film and, and, and do that or whatever. But it, it wasn't, it was really after just a couple of months of doing One Second Every Day, which was just supposed to be my way to keep a diary. It wasn't ever meant to be a business. It just started becoming clear to me that this was me scratching an itch that I've had for a long time that seemed to finally solve my problem. And I thought, I really believe that if I, if this is helping me, it could probably help a lot of us, like enough other people that there's value in finding a way to make this something that everybody, like other people can do um, easily. Because at the time, I mean, unless you were pretty good at Final Cut Pro or iMovie, and even I, I mean, you're talking about like 365 videos per year that are being yeah. spliced in. I mean, it, it takes work and skill um, and some knowledge of the software. And I thought, man, this should be as easy to do as Instagram. Like I'm literally just grabbing a moment from from a video per day and logging it. And I'm not even watching the video until I'm done. So, yeah, I came at it from the same way. And it wasn't until the second half of my year off that I was like, oh, wait a minute. I think this can be the thing. But it wasn't. It didn't start out that way. I, I had all these other ideas. So you weren't a software engineer, and you're not. You didn't have a ton of money saved up. You mentioned you were drinking from a flask. You were saving money, living frugally, <laughs> however you could. How do you get uh, a quality, you know, iPhone app built with no money and no coding skills? Yeah. So the journey on that is, you know, I I literally. I literally started by Googling, how do I make an app? Like I just didn't, like I, you know, I went to art school, put together a mock-up of what I, what I wish existed. I'm also, te- I'm very techie. So like I, you know, I, you know, I bought iPhone on day one, you know, I was bound and I'm early adopter, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, so I, I knew what I wish existed. I have no idea how to build it. I took some programming courses in high school and stuff, but like I wasn't, I wasn't remotely proficient for it. So basically, I just started out by asking everybody who would listen to me for out for coffee, asking questions. You know, all right, I need this kind of program. I need this thing. I started emailing, cold emailing every development shop in New York City that I could find on Google. I started showing up to uh, iOS developer meetups in New York, um, even though I wasn't a developer and I would just like blend in and just like try to hope that nobody asked me a programming question. And I was just trying to make friends and see if I could, you know, uh, meet somebody who might, might be a, a good co-founder or something like that. You know, I was getting ready to give up. And then I was, uh, cause I had talked to everybody and they said, basically every dev shop that I talked to was like, well, we'll build this for you for a hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have a hundred thousand dollars, but thank you. And the thing that like made me even more, you know, queasy after they would say the 100k is that they would say like and this is a very difficult thing we don't know if we can do it and we're just going to keep charging you a hundred dollars an hour while we figure it out 
So it could end up being way wow. more. I'm like, well, I'm like, all right, well, I mean, I don't, I mean, cause you know, we're, yeah, I mean, it's, this is 2012. Like people don't like building. There was like a lot of, I like, there's a lot of stuff about building an editing app that just didn't exist. Like it exists today. And so like out of the box stuff essentially, you know, I got lucky. I, I ended up at this agency party that a friend of mine was, was at and invited me to, he was the only person I knew and he was busy mingling with like 40 other people he invited. And so I just stood there and I did the classic, like, just sit next to someone. I was standing, standing next to somebody who also wasn't talking to anybody. So I just said, hi, uh, I'm Caesar. What do you do? And he's like, I'm a developer or I'm, I work at a development shop. I'm like, wait a minute, which one? Because I've talked to all of them. <laughs> and, and he he said, Alchemy 50. And I'm like, I, how have I never heard of you guys? I've Googled all of them. And he's like, oh, we just started. We just opened up shop. We all quit our... We all quit our jobs at this financial place, and we're all we're all gonna we're all gonna like we're all starting our our own thing. We just like we don't you know we don't have SEO yet. Mm. <laughs> I'm like, well, can I have your card? Can we meet? I'm trying to build an app. Two weeks later, I was at their offices. I pitched like I showed them the mockups. I, I was like, this is what I'm trying to do, and I caught them at the perfect time. Like they were trying to get their business going. Like they saw. Uh, that I spoke at TED and there was like some credibility to the idea because the video had done really well. It had gotten millions of views, the original one's first one second everyday video. And so, you know, they came back to me two weeks later to their credit. They even like spent time on their own before they gave me a quote or anything, like making sure they could do it. Like they were doing their own internal testing, making sure that they, they couldn't, they weren't over promising something. And they said, Hey, we want to be the guys who made this. And so because of that, and we know you're don't have money. So we're going to do this for the lowest possible amount that we can. Uh, give it to you for a flat fee of 20k and i'm like oh amazing all right high fives i'm in let's do it and then i followed that by saying i also don't have twenty thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> but i i will i am going to find it and it came to them like a week or so later and said i'm gonna launch a kickstarter campaign that's how i'm gonna raise the 20k and i hope you guys trust me that i'm gonna pull it off because my request is that I don't launch the Kickstarter campaign until we have a working prototype of the app because I don't want to promise something. I don't want to be one of those Kickstarter campaigns where like, this is what we're going to build. We're going to put a statue of RoboCop in Detroit, right? And yeah. then like, figure it out later. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, here's the app working and usable. Here's like video and like work. This is going to happen. And luckily they, you know, to, to their credit, they trusted me. We launched it. It took me months to put it together. We launched it and we, you know, we became, you know, we were till this day where the, you know, we got the most backers ever for an app on Kickstarter. We got a lot of press. We, you know, had over 11,000 backers and, and that allowed us to build the, the the first version of One Second Every Day. Um, back in we launched it in January of 2013. We we launched it we launched it two weeks after the Kickstarter ended, by the way, which is like a record for a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, it was like two weeks later, it's like we launched. Yeah, that's crazy. Usually, Kickstarters are notorious for like eight months after the project's over. Yeah, They're like, years. sorry, uh, yeah. this is an update. You know, we're we're behind schedule. It'll be out another year. Yep. yep. It's funny to hear you go around to all these different dev shops to talk to developers at parties and say, hey, I've got, I've got an app idea. I've been on yeah. the other side of that equation mm. literally hundreds of times. Hey, Corlin, I've got an app idea. I know you can code. Uh, you know, why don't you build this for me? And 99% yeah. of the time, I'm like, well, what's, why would I do that for you? Why don't I, I have my own ideas. I'll just work on my own right. stuff. You know, what do I need you for? But in your, your case, you're a little bit special because you had given a TED Talk. Like you were actually legit. This idea had legs. There was excitement about it. And we kind of glossed over that part of the story. You were initially inspired by a TED Talk that you heard from Stefan Stagmeister, but That's you ended right. up eventually on the TED stage yourself, not TEDx, uh, not to disparage TEDx speakers, but like the fully fledged actual TED Talk. And I think your video yeah, main, now main has stage. 
Yeah, main stage. And you've got I think, <laughs> 2 million views on your video at this point. How do you, how do you get into that position? What happened there? Yeah, the, the threat there, the story is uh, I had just started recording one second every day for myself. I was about two months in, maybe less, maybe six weeks in. And the reason I saw that Stefan Sagmeister TED Talk that changed my life instantly, that just convinced me to quit, that what I needed to do was quit my job and buy myself a year of time to figure things out. That talk, which inspired me to quit my job, essentially... I watched it because I would watch every TED talk every day. Like they would, there was every day there was the TED talk of the day. And this is back when like Facebook 20, man, this is like, I don't know. When I watched that talk, it might've been like 20, like 2008 or 2009. And so the Facebook algorithm wasn't like scoring things yet or stuff like that. Like, so like if you liked a page on Facebook, they would just, you would see everything they posted. It wasn't like throttled where like, unless they paid, then I would see it. Right. Like I, every day I would see it. So that's how I knew that the talk, like I would see it on my feed, TED Talk of the day, I would watch it. And so because I saw every post, they posted about the first ever TED auditions. And I thought, I clicked on the link, I read it. I'm like, wow, like what an amazing opportunity for somebody out there to like be able to audition for the first ever TED auditions. And I was like, ah, if only I had an idea worth spreading, you know, and I just kind of forgot about it. But it, the the link stayed on my on my like, you know, web browser, just like hanging there, just with a little TED logo. And it was just like, and as I'm on the web, which I'm on the web a lot every day, you know, I would just see it there hovering and, and it just kind of stayed in my headspace because of that. And I was at my dad's birthday. I was recording my second of the day at my dad's birthday. And as I was recording it, I thought to myself, you know, this is having like a really positive impact on my life so far. It's such a silly idea. All I'm doing is recording a second of video per day. There are people curing cancer. There are people like, you know, fixing the planet and countries. And I'm going to submit this as a TED audition thing because if I literally it came to this, like if I don't do it, I'm going to regret it forever. So I just need yeah. to do it so that I never regret it. Um, and that was the only reason I did it. It was just like that itch of like, I don't, I don't like regretting things. Like, you know, one of my high school, like guidance counselor was like, you know, my mentor at the time, I guess, to, to some degree was, you know, he said, you know, it's just something that to me that just hardwired into my head, which is like, uh, live to regret the things you did, not the things you didn't do. And I just like, that's just always been hardwired in my head always. And so I went home the deadline was that night at midnight, basically. And I just like recorded the video. I had to record a one minute video of me doing the TED audition, the, like my TED talk in essentially 60 seconds. Uh, I included 30 seconds of the first 30 seconds of the one second everyday video. This is online, by the way, which is very embarrassing. I wish like, luckily nobody, <laughs> it's, it's a little, it's, it's a little hidden. Nobody ever finds it. And two weeks later, I got an email from TED saying like, Hey, we chose essentially me and 17 other applicants out of about a thousand to speak at an event in New York city in wow. front of a crowd of TED attendees, like people who go to the conference, um, and they're going to be judging. And that was, man, I can't, that's a whole story on how, I mean, Reggie Watts was one of the auditioners, which is like crazy. Like, just give Reggie Watts a TED Talk. Why is he auditioning? This is nuts. And they ended up choosing four of us. I got an email two weeks later. They chose four of us to speak at the main stage, TED, and that, uh, yeah, I, I, I threw up that entire week. I was just like a mess. <laughs> I've never done public speaking, and I was my first public speaking event ever was yeah. the TED main stage. So Crazy. That was that was a rough. That was a rough day. But I got through it, and you know that that really obviously kickstarted the idea because uh, immediately afterwards, people were walking up to me, and everybody was saying like, "I want to do this too. I want to do this too. How do I do this? How'd you do it?" 
And that's the moment that it really clicked on me. Like, I have to build an app that makes it easy for anybody to do this. You know, that explains why you had the the wherewithal to basically go from dev shop to dev shop and <laughs> figure out how you can get this app built because you had so much validation that this is something that people actually wanted. Yeah, it's like a per- version of traction, right? It's a, it's not like a, oh, I built this and I'm, we're growing 10% month to month. Like, it was just like, a, hey, like, look at how many views this has. Look at the comments. Like, everybody's like, because outside of the TED Talk, just the video in its, of itself on YouTube and Vimeo, you know, ha- had a lot of views. And, you know, we got the front page of Reddit. And, you know, it was like the comments were just heavily on like, oh, my God, I want to do this. That helped validate the idea, you know, beyond just like, hey, I've been doing this thing and I think it's cool. It was like, hey, I built this thing, put it online, got millions of views. People say they want to do it, too. And I think that goes obviously a long way without actually building anything. Every now and then I talk to founders who are so secretive about their idea that they won't even tell mm-hmm. it to you like at a, a meetup or a party. They're like, oh, I can't tell you the details. And yet here yeah. you were, you hadn't built anything, and you were like on the main stage at TED, broadcasting your idea to millions of people on the front page of Reddit without a care in the world, just like putting this out there for everyone to see. Anyone could have built it. Did you feel any yeah. pressure to hurry up and get the app developed? Did you worry that other, other people would take the idea, or are you just sort of uh, cruising along? Hundred percent, and I've actually—I was that guy. I'll be be honest. Like, it took me a long time to realize that that that's just not helpful for anyone. I definitely was secretive. Even after the you know the app came out, people would ask me like, "What's next? What are you going to do this? What are you going to do?" Like, what 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 you know? What's on the whatever? I was like, "Oh, you know, just be very vague." Like, we're we're working on some stuff. Like, I, I I would keep my ideas close to the chest, and I can't remember who it was that really talked some sense into me on how that just. No one's no one's out there trying to steal your idea, you know. And like, and there, trust me. After the app came out, there were certainly people who were like, "Oh, that's a thing. We should make a clone." But generally speaking, I think that the pros of telling, just sharing your idea to anybody who will listen, are gargantually in your like, you know, better off than the cons. Like, yeah. the cons are like very tiny and minuscule and edge cases. There's just always edge cases of somebody like stealing an idea or something like that. But, you know, and ultimately, like, for example, that, you know, they're, they're like the people who built clones, built, built it without heart, built it very utilitarian without any insight into like, they weren't somebody who actually did once like every day for a year and then built an app to like figure out what they wish existed, which is what I did. They just built something that does the thing. It was it was functional, but it was you know just they, they never had any they they were never able to put the kind of love we put into it you know and right. so you know at the end of the day obviously execution is king right and and luckily I came to my senses and fun, fun and funnily like you know I get so many emails from people who want to want help want my help and want to want me to like sign an NDA and I'm like dude <laughs> I'm not I'm not signing an NDA like uh you know like it's and I try to give them like a quick like trust me you're this is not the way you want to go about trying to get your idea to the world. Like it's just, and more often than not, like sadly, like, you know, when I do convince somebody to just tell me their idea, I'm like, uh, well, okay. Like, listen, first of all, there's a very successful company that's already doing this. You probably, I guess you haven't heard of. And you don't have to be that guy who's like trying to, who, who doesn't, who wants to encourage people to like pursue. Their, I'm always trying to like help. I answer a lot of cold emails from people who just are looking for my help about specifically what you said earlier, which is like, I'm somebody who's not a programmer who had an idea and wanted to build something. I get so many emails from so many messages from people who are in the same position where I can't build the thing. I need help building the thing. How do I build the thing? And I'm like, I know it sucks. It's hard. Here's what I can suggest. Yeah. I feel like I want to reemphasize some of the things you said, because I've talked to so many founders in this position and you nailed it on the head. Number one, the benefits of telling people your ideas, seeing how they react, engaging with them about it are gargantuan. The gargantuan. 
the risks of like somebody cloning your idea are minuscule. It's just like an edge case. You probably shouldn't worry about it. And regardless, if you build something successful, people are probably going to clone it. People have cloned the hackers. People have cloned most apps. And those people cloning your app are not really the people you want to be worried about because they don't really have the knowledge. They don't really have the heart. They're just kind of arbitrarily cloning what you do. So they're usually not that good. They're usually not that scary. So it's, it's yeah. more than worth it to share your idea with people. I want to talk a little bit about this TED Talk. Sure. Ted, obviously, as you mentioned, has a lot of very accomplished people, a lot of people who've been working on world-changing ideas for decades, who've spoken to audiences about it hundreds of times. Uh, This is your first time on the stage, your first time public speaking. How do you prepare for something like that? And also, what are some of the things you learned from the staff at TED that you think would be generally useful for others to know? I don't even know where to start. I, I mean, I okay, so the one thing I learned that got me through it, there's a couple of things that got me through it. One was when I auditioned, there was like a... At the event here in New York, I went up on stage during rehearsals, which was like my me time with the stage. There's only a couple of people like connecting wires and stuff like that. No, no one's really paying attention. It's just your time to get comfortable with the stage. And I had written this like I had three minutes. I had I, had, I was allotted three minutes for my talk. And I had this uh, this perfect three minute thing that I wrote up of like, here's my talk. And I went up on stage. I said it or I tried to say it. And after two sentences, I couldn't remember what the third sentence was like i just stood <laughs> i just stood there like with no when an empty 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 seats i just stood there and i panicked and i just pretended that my mic wasn't working or i wasn't sure if my mic was working and i just walked off stage because i was just like mortified i mean i was every bone in my body i, I was panicking i was i froze i went up to the bathroom i locked myself in a stall and i and i just sat there like oh my god what am i gonna do like i I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I was shaking. And I just sat there and I was like, what's my game plan? What's my game plan? The game plan that I came up with that saved me was I said to myself, if you forget what you're supposed to say, just keep saying stuff. Just explain the thing in your own words in the moment. No one's going to know you're fucking up except you. So as much as I, I mean, I literally had my little printout and I just said, I wrote, I read the thing I wanted to say for like the next four hours over and over and over and over again. But I'm just so, yeah, I got up on stage and exact same thing happened. I said three sentences before I just completely just blanked. I'm just, I'm just so nervous. Any, all these eyes looking at me, I'm just panicking and I'm like, just keep talking, just keep talking. And I just said a bunch of stuff that I didn't mean to say. Like I said, I got pretty morbid. Like I was like, someday when I die, I want this video <laughs> to just be what I leave behind. I don't want a tombstone because like I'm gonna, I don't, I don't need to take up space in this world. Like I just said, like I just blabbed, which is I'm good at blabbing. Mm-hmm. I'm not good at like rehearsing a set amount of characters to say in order again after I read it. Like I'm just not a memorizer i'm just not good at it and i didn't know that about me because i've never had to do public speaking but luckily i got through it i went a minute over my time sorry ted and and it's hard it's funny because like it's there's the total possibility that if i had actually said what i meant to say i wouldn't have been chosen to speak at the main stage like i don't know maybe it's the random stuff that i spoke out of my heart in that moment of panic that is what got me the main stage I'll never know. I'll never know what the what the outcome would have been. But the same exact thing happened to me on the main on, on the on the TED stage. I got up there as much as that. That was an eight minute talk. As much as I tried to memorize what I was supposed to say, I just couldn't do it in the moment. I just froze. And again, 
the crowd doesn't know, but I just started speaking from the heart. And so I see them. I, I've, I've only been able to watch my TED talk like three or four times. <laughs> um, and it was only because I was, my parents were watching it and yeah. you know, they don't know what TED is. They're just like, I don't know. Cute. Thank you. Like, I don't know. Congratulations, I guess. Uh, but you know, like I, when I hear it, like, I, you know, half the things I meant to say, I didn't get to say them. And I, you know, I, I feel pain about that, but, but I got through it and people seem to, I, you know, resonate to it and people message me till this day about it. And, and, you know, so yeah, speaking of Ted, I don't know what I learned for number one was what works for me is speaking from the heart ever, ever since I, I give myself like bullet points to memorize and ideally with even a, with a power note and makes it super easy. And I just speak from the heart as I start seeing the, you know, the, the PowerPoint presentation kind of play out. Like, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I, I know why I put this up there. I want to say I want to explain X. And that's how I do my public speaking. I was like, speak from the heart based on a PowerPoint image. <laughs> I'm the opposite. I will memorize verbatim every line of a 45 minute talk. But you got to do whatever works for you. So you did this TED talk. You off the back of that found some developers who were excited to work with you. They built a prototype for free. You got on Kickstarter. The Kickstarter went well. How many backers did you end up getting? 11,000? 11,281. And they each paid you what? An average of a dollar, a couple dollars? <laughs> right. The, the, the terrible business-minded uh, Caesar of, of that time was I, didn't, I wasn't trying to build a business. I was trying to build the app and then put it on the app store and have it exist so that people could – I just wanted people to be able to do one second every day. That was my goal. And – and the additional cherry on top of that goal, ideally, was I make enough money passively on through the app store on the app that I can uh, use that income to like uh, work on my other creative endeavors that I had, like you know, make another music video as an example or something. And that was a terrible business decision. I decided to make the app one dollar so that because I just wanted people to have it. So you know, like eight thousand or something of the of the of the pledges were a dollar. Uh, I did spend a lot of time figuring out how to build value without building more, without adding more work into the Kickstarter. Um, so for $5, we put your name in the credits forever. So till this day, the app has a credit, like a Kickstarter backer section and every, there's like about, you know, something like three to 4,000 names in it. And that was amazing because those people are paying us five times more for the app uh, than they had to for their name of the credits. So it was like perfect because it's basically an as you know it's an SV file, a, C, a CV file we app we upload into the app. And so it created very little work for us. Um, that was one of my takeaways from doing a lot of Kickstarter research was like a lot of a lot of uh, Kickstarters are just like promise like we'll do this, we'll do that if you give us this much. And it's like, yeah, that's gonna take you a lot of that's like you know somebody who's giving like T-shirts away for twenty dollars or whatever at a twenty dollar tier. It's like that's gonna cost you like <laughs> a lot. Of, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna yeah you're gonna make like a couple like three or four dollars per pledge on a lot of work. At least at the time, there's better solutions for that stuff now. But anyway, so I you know I, I made sure to to make sure every tier all the way to the two hundred and fifty dollar tier, which was like. You get the app right now for two, you know for two hundred dollars. You would become a beta tester. We literally send you the app right now, and we were limited to the one hundred beta testers kind of rule at the time from Apple. So uh, we only had like forty slots, but all of them filled up in a in a heartbeat. Like if we could have filled that up with like unlimited, oh so my much more. God, oh, I would have. Been, plus, we would have had way more beta testers. Way more. You know, we would have figured out way more bugs before we launched. Like on day one, we had like fifty thousand downloads. I mean, it was it was a, a support ticket per second. Like it was just like boom, boom, boom. I mean, we we the first two to three months were rough just fixing bugs. 
it was just a part of the limitation of like only being only having like you know 40 you know 60 or so people testing you know but um, who was um we at this point when you launched was it just you and the dev shop yeah so it's just me full-time and the dev shop part-time essentially like they were you know they were you know obviously for the first couple of months i was very very active back and forth but then obviously over time they needed to make money and they had other clients and and so, yeah, for the first like two years, I would say, yeah, for the most part of the first two years, I just still thought in my head, I can't wait to finish. Once I finish these bugs and these updates, I'll finish, quote unquote, the app. And it took me it took me a while to realize, oh, like you don't finish technology. There's always going to be a, another iPhone. There's always going to be another iOS update. There's always going to be a feature that re- yeah. like that's really important. Learn the hard way. And then that's when, you know, it was Kind of like, you know, halfway through year two, I think, when I realized, oh, this is a business. This isn't just a thing I can finish and move on to the next thing and just forget about it. Like, this is taking up all my time. At the time, too, this is around the time when um, Chef, those listeners of yours have heard, who've watched the movie Chef, John Favreau's Chef, that, uh, you know, we were featured in that movie. John had seen the TED Talks, uh, had started using the app, loved it ask if he could write it into his movie that movie is largely about social media by the way like that movie, it's a food truck movie and it's about like parenthood but it's also about social media at that point i was like oh yeah okay this is a business and that's when i really started to think about all right how do i actually grow and make this something permanent and forever and not just like a i'm done thing it's crazy how much attention you're getting john favreau liked the app you put it in his movie you got fifty thousand downloads i think you said like right after you launched where was all this attention coming from? Were you doing a ton of marketing? Was it just uh, because of the TED Talk? Uh, you know, till this day, we've uh, we've never we've never really spent a dime on user acquisition uh, for the most part. We've, it's been entirely or- our growth has been organic all these years. The everything has a story, probably. Uh, so, with the fifty thousand downloads on day one was <laughs> essentially because well, the Kickstarter did really well. So now we, we had essentially the ability to email 11,000 people, right? So that's pretty powerful. We did not have a way to deliver the app to 11,000 people, <laughs> which was a problem. Essentially, like, contacted someone at Apple, kind of, like, like maybe lied that I was in San Francisco and I really would like to talk to somebody there because we... We were like, how do we deliver 11,000 apps to people? Um, there's no way to do Till this day, I don't think there's a way to do that. They said yes, and I just like got on the next flight to San Francisco. <laughs> and I, you know, and basically I just got met with a lot of red tape, meaning like there was just no way for them to give me 11,000 promo codes so I can give 11,000 promo codes to 11,000 people. Uh, there's just no way to do that. And so we were stuck with only one option, which was we are going to make the app free for 24 hours and we're going to message every Kickstarter backer as much as we can leading up to this moment and say, please, please, please download this app during this 24 hour window because it's the only way we can get you the app before we turn the app to paid. Because of that, there's a couple of things that happened. A, obviously there's a lot of people who, who run newsletters or whatever, who see this email. Mm -hmm. And so, the day it goes free, a you have to like you have a t- thousands and thousands of people posting on social media and sending and blasting out everywhere like, hey, once again, everybody's free today only. <laughs> um, and so we got tons of tons of t- tons of quote unquote free press from that. So like you know, 
we were getting tons of, you know, there were, we were, I was getting Google alerted like crazy about like, you know, all these like Mac websites that are like, one second every day is 24 hours only, once is free, is free. And so the word got out because everybody's like, this is, this is the only time you're going to be able to download this app for free. So that's how we ended up right next to Instagram on day one. And that's how that happened. That was a headache because like obviously a lot of people didn't see the emails and a lot mm. of people for the next many years were I was getting emails from Kickstarter backers saying like, hey, I never got the app. I missed the 24 hour window and I would have to send them a promo code, which we only got a hundred of every time we submitted an update. So sometimes it would take us a while to get the app to people. It was oh, it was an ongoing nightmare in that regard. And yeah, it was it was rough. But in regards to to Chef, basically I'm a giant nerd and I read comic books throughout, you know, growing up, you know, and I was uh, I was a Mar- I was an intern at Marvel Comics when I was in in high in, 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 in college. And, you know, Marvel had started making their own movies and I was a huge John Favreau fan. So I was following him on Twitter when he was when Iron Man three came out, like he he directed Iron Man one and Iron Man two, but he did not direct Iron Man three. And he cast himself in Iron Man 1 and 2 as like, you know, Iron Man's driver, Happy Pappy. And he still showed up for Iron Man 3, even though he was no longer directing it. And I thought, why isn't anybody giving this man credit for having the class to still show up as like Iron Man's driver in an Iron Man sequel, even though he's no longer directing the movie? And I was like, why isn't anybody giving him like his due credit? So it was like four in the morning, like... I just like tweeted at him that like, it was just like, Hey, uh, John, thank you for having the class to still be, you know, play, you know, still play your role in, in Iron Man three, even though you're no longer directing it, something like that. I didn't even send it. I was too, I was like, Who's? I was like afraid somebody would see it and like judge me. And I, was just, like, <laughs> I just like, I, I was like, I just fell asleep on the couch and I woke up like at six in the morning and I was walking to bed and I saw, I swiped up my phone or whatever. At the time I hit the home button and it, it opened. And I saw that I, I had that, draft of that tweet that i didn't send and it's like i'm groggy at six in the morning i'm like ah, whatever and i just hit send and i went to sleep and then yeah cut to me uh, like on the set of the movie of chef like you know a year later and i was talking to the the guy who was shooting the making of uh he shoots the making of for all the marvel movies and he's like do you know how like you you know john found out about your app and i'm like i have no idea and he's like i guess you tweeted something nice at him like you know a while back and i was like oh <gasps> Like, that's how this all happened? Like, it was just like, he saw that tweet, looked at my profile, saw that I had given a TED Talk, clicked on the talk, watched the talk, saw I, there was an app, wow. downloaded the app, started using the app, loved the app, and then eventually I got an email from a producer of Chef saying, like, John Favreau would like to include your or your app in his movie. And then, of course, they sent me, like, the script of it and for my approval, and it's like the best, most important part of the entire movie. And I'm like, oh, my God, like this. I mean, this is incredible. Uh, and so that's how that's how that happened. Until this day, obviously, we got people who watch Chef and, and, and find us through through that movie. It's crazy because there's so many bad things to be said about social media. In fact, most of what people share publicly about social media is negative. It's about how it's ruining the world. It's ruining our attention spans, et cetera, et cetera. But Never before has it been possible <laughs> to get in touch with a celebrity or somebody you find so inspiring uh, so quickly and trivially and easily as just pressing send on a tweet you know, at six in the morning when you're groggy and having that be kind of a life-changing event. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think about, you know, like in a, in a multiverse kind of way, like what is that perfect tweet you can send to someone 
that will change your life, right? <laughs> like there must be something you can write at the that you can write like a set of 180 character, 280 characters that you could send. You know, if you were to nail it and you were to time it right, could literally change your life, right? Your whole like, life's static. Your whole life's different, right? Everything, the trajectory of your life changes, but, you know, and so like if you could play out like millions of, of, of simulations on like, on, on life and buy the right thing, uh, that would, you know, it's a, it's a fun thing to think about because, yeah, you could totally do that. Anybody has the power to do that. It's social media. I mean, we, you know, us at, you know, at One Second Everyday, we're, you know, we're, we spend a lot of time thinking about what are the, th- what are the things about social media that that we love? What are the things that we hate, and how do we unbundle those into something that we think will benefit our customers and hopefully stick, you know, be around for a long time without having to compromise with uh, with the user experience? You know, it's funny because there are a lot of people out there who aren't really doing very much. Maybe they have big dreams, but they're not taking action. They're not, you know, trying to figure out that perfect 140 character tweet they could send. But on the flip side, here you were basically sending on this rocket ship that was getting so much press, so many downloads, so much attention, and you didn't really conceptualize of it as a real business. And for you, it was sort of a temporary means to an end, and you were going to move on to other things. Why do you think that it took you so long to really double down and figure out that one second every day was something that you really should be treating as a business? Well, I think uh, one, of, one thing I, I used I think it used to be in my Twitter bio. I think I took it out. But I used to say I was an accidental entrepreneur. Like I, I never, <laughs> if you, I literally would have conversations with friends in college saying like, oh, owning a business, that sounds like the worst possible like scenario. Like I just, everything about it seemed awful to me. I mean, it just seemed like so much responsibility, so much, so much weight on your shoulders. Like you're responsible for like making sure all these people get paid and, and, and blah, blah, blah. And like, it just seems so stressful. And it, I was like, I just want to go work at Pixar and nine to five, walk out, work on Toy Story 7, you know, like I just, uh, that, that's where my head was at. But it wasn't really until I, you know, got into the real world that I realized, oh, actually being an entrepreneur is the only way to really be in control of what you do and how you do it and and really, really actually have creativity or have the power to really, it's the same stuff, the same reasons why I got into computer animation and all that, which was like, oh, I wanted to tell stories and I was in high school making my own little animated shorts. I mean, those are my ideas. I was executing them on my own. I was like distributing them up, distributing it, the, them on my own. I mean, I was in charge of my destiny with all that. And I realized after just working in the, you know, in, in the real world for a bit, it's like, oh, I'm not in charge of my destiny at all. Like I'm relying on, all sorts of other factors that I have no control over all the time. Being an entrepreneur was actually the only way to actually like literally feel like I'm in control and I could make it whatever I, you know, what, if I work my ass off, I can make it work. Like I can make it happen. Right. So it, it, yeah, it, it took me a long time to really kind of, uh, there was a, there was a book called the art of nonconformity that I read right when I was, uh, right when I quit my job. And at that time I still had no, int- I, I just was going to take a year off and go back to work. And hopefully by then go back to work on something more I'm more passionate about or whatnot. And that book was the, uh, I feel like a huge catalyst for helping me because my entire bubble was just like other animators, you know, just other artists who they're, what they did is, I mean, our school doesn't prepare you to become an entrepreneur. Our, our, our school prepares you to go and be an artist for other people. So which is like a huge pain point for me. Like I literally, I was a, t- I was, I was a, I was an adjunct professor at Pratt, which is where I went to school afterwards. And I was like, 
you know, I was like, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm like 23, 24. I'm like, I'm going to change the system. And I'm like, I'm going to like, I was having all these meetings all the way to the president of the university trying to like change. I was like, there should be entrepreneurship class. There should be this, there should be that. Like, and you know, I just red tape, red tape, red tape. Um, but it took a long time to figure all this out, you know, frankly. And, and yeah, that book opened up my eyes beyond my bubble of you go and you get a job and you get the best job you can. And that was it. And that opened up my eyes to all the possibilities to really be in control of your time and your life. And yeah, I'm very grateful to, to that book for helping me see that, like, actually entrepreneurship is not what I thought it was. Like, I, I also always thought of entrepreneurship as like, oh, like, you become an entrepreneur because you want to get rich. And like, that's never been my goal. That's just not what drives me in any way. Like, I'm driven more by, like, helping people or doing cool stuff and enjoying who I'm around. And like, I don't, I'm just not driven by those elements. Why? That's why I went to art school, which everybody said would be the worst possible thing I could do for my career because I'm never going to make money. And, you know, it's what every artist gets told when they go to art school. Uh, so you're, well, you're never, you're just going to be a starving artist the rest of your life. There's a lot of elements. So when you decide to turn this app into a business, when you realize, hey, being an entrepreneur is not what I thought it was, it's actually a pretty cool thing. I can structure my life how I want it to be. What's the process from going to just having a passion project to having something that you're really serious about? What did that look like for you? The immediate thing for me was, I can't do this by myself. Like once I realized, all right, this is going to be a business. Also, I'm killing myself running the business. I mean, I was, man, I was wake. I mean, it was, those first couple of years were rough. Like I was waking up, checking my inbox, and there would be just endless emails. Hundreds of them were support tickets. And I would just put headphones on and lock out like three hours just to reply to, reply to, to support tickets. So replying to support, a lot of the support tickets were really rough because some things were, all right, yeah, that we're working on that fix. And some things were like, yeah, like, you know, we have part-time development. Like some of these, like everything was just slow. Everything was just like, you know, I'm not going to be able to help up some of these people out. Like I had to start making some hard decisions about like where I was distributing my time best. And sometimes that meant I had to like ignore some support tickets just because it meant that I could fix the thing that they're writing support tickets about. Right. Like, um, it's just the really, really tough stuff. And at the same time, I know what I'm like, I know what my strengths are. I know what my strengths are not. You know, I just kind of started thinking about like, man, what are all these things that like, just, I'm never, I'm like, I'm okay at them, but they're just not, it's just not, it's not what the value I bring to, to this. And luckily, uh, you know, as I was, putting you know piecing together these pieces of things that i just didn't feel like i was really good at i started thinking through the rolodex of my brain of like who are the humans in my life that like into these 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 traits and luckily uh you know it was pretty quick i thought of uh you know one of my best friends sean Shove, who i went to art school with during my year off from work he also quit his job and and we we drove around the u.s u.s and canada for like 95 days throughout the summer of like 2012 and you know 25,000 miles. And, and during that time, uh, you know, we did not kill each other, (laughs) um, you know, 95 days in a car together, camping together, you know, crashing on couches together. We, uh, you know, we, 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 we got along, you know, and, and I thought, well, if if I was going to quote unquote, get married because of being in a co-founder relationship is a, is a marriage. If I was going to get married with somebody who to really, you know, you know, stick it out with me on this journey for the long term. Like, you know, I think Seanick and I make a good team and he's the perfect other half of the brain where he likes making pie charts and graphs and systems and like business models. And I'm like, ah, like all that stuff just makes me like run away for the hills. I'm just, I like the product. I like the ideas. I like to like, you know, talk to people. Like there's just like all this other stuff that I'm way better at 
and he was perfect for the other stuff. So I took him out to drinks. I said, hey, what will it take for you to quit your job, Nickelodeon, and join me full time? And it took it took some courting. It took a couple of took a couple of drinks. It took a couple of uh, meetings. You know, one of his stipulations was like, "I don't want to live in New York anymore." And I'm like, "Cool, we're a remote company." And we that was the day we became a remote company. It just when we were two, that got the ball rolling. Like at that point, up until he came on board and he quit his job and joined me. Like at that point, like man, like things started moving. Like because I was just drowning in all the to dos of trying to sing, be a single founder with like part time development. I think a lot of people in that situation would say, hey, I've got a tech company. I've got an app. And what tech founders do is they go to Silicon Valley and they find some investors and raise millions of dollars. So that's what I'm going to do. And that's not what you did. You decided to bootstrap, at least for a while. Was that a conscious decision that you made? Look, there's a couple of ways we got to that. One of them was I just am so removed from Silicon Valley land at the point where I'm starting one second every day that I just don't know this stuff like i just don't know that you go out and you raise money it just never my head doesn't think like my, my i didn't know i didn't know the space i came from art i would go to art galleries not like you know vc holiday parties you know like i it came from a totally different space and so i don't know anything about business i went to a this is like one of my early seconds of the day was me at a book signing that ferris did in new york city at the apple store he had just released the four-hour body I had read the four hour work week. And so that's kind of like, kind of like, like started, you know, like, uh, catching up on like Tim Ferriss's blog. And I just like hovered around him hoping to talk to him, but I'm, I'm the kind of guy who like, I'm not pushy. I'm not, I'm not the guy who's just going to like screw all these people. I'm going to get my way and I'm just going to cut through everybody and say my thing. Like I just stood by wait, hoping that the crowd around him would dissipate after he finished his talk. And I waited two hours basically and there were still like 10 people around them. Clearly, some people were like, I'm not leaving. I'm just going to hang here. And I could hear Tim say, listen, guys, I've been here for two hours. Sorry. Like, I really got to have dinner. Like, I'm going to be late. And I'm like, oh, no. And I'm like, because oh, I was hoping to just be the last person to talk to him. And I just like, all right. I just mangled my way in there. And I just said, Tim, I just gave this TED Talk about this thing. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to build an app for it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I don't know how to get money to build it. And he said don't raise money, like figure out a way to build it, build a prototype without investors. And that really stuck with me. And that's how I landed on, that's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that I landed on Kickstarter as a means of funding the app. But that also resonated for me long-term in the sense of like, so once I started being a part of the tech ecosystem early on that first year of after launching the app, I'm like, all right, I guess I'm a tech guy now. Um, you know, I started becoming privy to this like VC land and I, I, I can't, it's re, like, it, it sounded alien to me. Like, I couldn't believe that I could just pitch someone this thing and that they'll just write me a check for a hundred, like a million dollars, for example, right? Like, um, and all they get in return is, you know, on paper, 20% of it. And if I fail, I never have to pay the million back. <laughs> that sounded insane to me. Like, I just couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't believe that that was real. And I always thought to myself, there's got to be a catch. There's got to be a catch. Like, what's the catch, right? And it really, it really took some time for, well, now that being said, at that point, I did try to raise money. Like, I, as I was understanding this ecosystem, I was like, oh, like, all right, like, but then comes the problem of like, well, how do I, 
where are these investors? How do you get a meeting with these guys? Like, you know, like there's, again, I don't come from the, from a background where like, I just asked for an intro from my, my good, you know, that good friend who knows all EVCs or whatever, right? Like, which is what like most people seem to do. Like getting that access to, to, to actually get a meeting with an investor was like just something that I just also alien to, like, how do you do that? And coming into this like idea of, all right, I'm going to try to, I would walk into these, once I actually started getting some meetings, I would get the meetings and the investors would, uh, be like, well, like, wait, like, who's your technical, who's your CTO? And we're like, uh, we're like outsourcing it to a developer shop and giant red flag, right? Like we were, we're, we're not the technical co-founders. So there, that's, that's a red flag. There was a, you're charging for it. Why isn't the app free? It's like, we can't afford to make it free because we need to make money. <laughs> you know, like it, it was crazy to them that we would charge for the app instead of just like, you know, whatever. Um, and there's just all this stuff. And at the same time, like these conversations would lead into like, what are you going to do with it? What are you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And at the time, like you have to remember the ecosystem. This is 2012, 2013. I am positive that if we had raised money to build this company in 2012, 2013, 2014, we'd be dead. We, we wouldn't have made it because like iPhones had storage of like eight to 16 gigs. Sharing video was very difficult. Sharing video at the time was you had to connect your phone to your computer uh, to get the 600 megabyte HD file that our app created, put it into your computer, and then you had to upload it to YouTube or Vimeo, which is the only basically two platforms that could take that much uh, you know, uh, for free. Um, and then you could share a link out on your social medias, right? Nobody had native video yet. And that was it. You know, we're talking 3G at best. If you were lucky, you had 3G. And so you couldn't upload directly from your device. Cameras, video, you know, there's just so much that what we are, like the Zeitgeist wasn't ready for what we were doing at a, at a huge scale. Like we weren't going to be growing 10% month to month. Not to mention because we're kind of, we were, you know, we were, we launched as a thing that was a bird's eye view of your life, not this daily sharing thing. We weren't an instant share platform. Like our platform was, you're going to build up to this thing that eventually you watch, you know, you know, uh, you know, in a, within a couple of months or, or, you know, it's in most cases a year. So like, we weren't going to give like, you know, investor wants to hear that like, well, yeah, and people are going to download it today and they're going to share something a year from now. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, so we were, we just, uh, we, we had red flags left and right for, the VCs that we met, you know, just, we just, we weren't a venture scale thing to any of them. And so on the one hand, like, yes, I tried to raise money and I probably would have been, and I was probably not educated enough at the time that if somebody had offered me money, I would have been like, hell yeah, take it, you know, 20%, whatever, sign me, I'll just sign anything. Like, I would just, I'd be so excited to just do anything. But yeah, we got lucky that like, that we never raised it. And as obviously I just started, I started speaking a lot. I started getting more and more friends who were CEOs and we'd sit around and we'd chat and they'd tell me their experiences with venture capital. And it always sounded awful. Like no, like none of my BC venture capital backed friends would be like, oh yeah, like, well, I mean, maybe some, uh, there's, there's always exceptions, but you know, most of them would just talk about the really difficult hardships they would go through to like grow their company as fast as possible by any means necessary. And Timing is a huge thing. Like, like our, you know, uh, we, you know, um, we would not, we would not, we'd never have made it this far if we had raised capital at the time because the timing would have been awful. Like, we weren't ready to do the kind of things we could do now. Today, like, people can share, uh, you know, a video very quickly. They can share it straight to Instagram feeds. And, you know, this has all been a driver of our growth. And we've been lucky enough to be sitting on the surfboard so that the waves started coming every time there's like a new, 
you know, thing that allows people to share easily or do something, you know, better stories was huge for us because people had a place to like create, you put their story somewhere where it wouldn't disappear in 24 hours. And, you know, we were able to write those waves as, as they've, as they've come. So it's all a weird part of the journey on getting to a place where we realize, Oh, you know what? I don't know if bootstrapping, Oh, I don't know if VC funding is actually what we want or what would be good for the company long-term. Um, so we, we kind of got lucky, but also like it came a little bit from the fact that we just didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> yeah. You kind of intuited this can't be real. There has to be some sort of a catch. And then I guess through talking to, to VCs, you realize there was a catch and it's, it's kind of a psychological one, you know, the pressure to grow at all costs. I know a lot of founders and SF, I live in the Bay area who have raised money and they're usually so gung ho and so excited when they do it. But then after that, you know, if you're not growing five X a year, even if your business is doubling every year, that's not what your investors want to see. They want to see more growth. And so you can actually feel pretty bad about what you're doing, even if it's helping people, even if it's growing, if it's not growing at the level that your investors want. And that's just an awful feeling to, to feel like you're letting down people who've given you millions of dollars, but at the same time, they're driving you to make your company into this growth monster that isn't necessarily healthy or, or what you want to do. Yeah, you know, it's like part of the issue is that you're forced to grow something that the market might not be ready for with that because you have this runway, you're burning cash, right? Like you're, you're not monetizing yet. So you're just like, you're hoping that the timing is going to be right within the burn, the, the amount of you know cash you have for for your burn for your runway and so there's no you know the vc you know as we it, it's all way more way more obvious now that you know the vc model really is a you know a rocket fuel for uh companies that are gonna you know that that, that are already mature enough to like or, or markets that are already mature enough to grow very quickly and whatnot. But the issue is that, like, if you if you have a you could like the fact the thing that always killed me early those early days was like I'd be perfectly happy building like a hundred million dollar company that like is doing good and is is, and is doing it's still growing. It's just not you know it's not like we've been growing like basically like two x a year essentially, and you know, that's, you know there's there's a lot of stuff we're working on that 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 we think is going to make that escalate that dramatically but the problem is like i just over all these years like i just see so many great ideas die just because they uh like they had a they had a great product they just didn't either have the business model or the or the or or the ability to stop and just say like this is pretty good like maybe we don't need to keep forcing I mean, Path is a great example of something that so many people loved, except, of course, at the time, like subscription models weren't really a thing yet. And, you know, that uh, that's something that, you know, uh, just couldn't, you know, was something that could have could have still been around today when when Facebook was going through their privacy issues. And they yeah. could have wrote, wrote that wave if they had still been on the board on, on the surfboard. They sadly, you know, were forced into a whole bunch of stuff that maybe wasn't best at the time. It was just the timing was off, in my opinion, for, for Path. That's a pretty tragic story. I think they raised, like, I don't know, like 50 or 60 million, like a crazy amount of money. Um, and they were turning down acquisition offers. I think Google or something offered to buy them yeah. $100 million. And like, no, we're going to grow. And, you know, now it's, it's dead. It's no longer even a thing. Yeah. I talked to a lot of founders who are kind of like you were, where they are coming into tech and they didn't know a ton about the ecosystem. They certainly didn't know a ton about business and business strategy and what it took to run a company. And yet they were able to successfully kind of wing it and learn on the job and figure out what they needed to learn. And obviously a lot of listeners 
are in the same situation. Maybe they're artists, maybe they're marketers, maybe they're developers, uh, but they, you know, they haven't gone to business school. They don't know exactly what it takes to run a business. In your experience as someone who's been learning all this on the job, do you think you're at a disadvantage not knowing all that stuff in advance? And how do you learn on the job while you're running your company? You know, I, if anything, I probably just because of like things like I don't know about venture capital, like my lack of knowledge actually probably helped and saved the company. Like I just wasn't tuned into like, this is how you do things. Like, like I think a lot of people fall into, into this as like, here are the, here's what you do. Right. Like, and I just asked a lot of questions about like, why do I do that? Like, what about, what's the catch? Right. Like, um, so I, for, I, one of my quote unquote ideas for when I quit my job was I was, I was thinking of going to business school because I thought, well, I'm a sort of business. I got to go to business school. And that's just where my head was at. I didn't, you know, uh, I didn't really consider that you could just wing it. And then it turns out, yeah, actually I would say everybody should just wing it. Like I find, uh, it seems, it seems like business school is really built for just like getting a job at a giant corporate thing that's already just got its systems built it's not built for just acting like i mean with some exceptions probably you know stanford or whatever like where i think the ecosystem is probably more geared towards like people becoming startup founders but i know a lot um, of people who went to uh gsb stanford's business school and they are all working for bigger companies not starting their own companies <laughs> right right and which is like nothing wrong with that i mean i uh i, I, I like not every not everyone is you know uh, is uh, is is necessarily meant to start a company. Obviously, not everybody's uh, you know like a not everyone's an entrepreneur necessarily for sure. And it certainly requires a lot of you know emotion. It's it's an emotional emotional journey that uh, is very difficult. I, I I was recently chatting with a friend of mine. Well, I, I had just met her and she was, I was asking, she was saying all this stuff. And I was like, have you considered like starting your own company? She's like, oh, I did it for five years. Realized not for me. That's not, that's not what I want. I was like, all right, fair, great. Like you scratched your itch and you know that that's not what you want. And now she's perfectly happy working at a, at a, at a, at a big corporate, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think everybody has to figure out their, where they, that Venn diagram of like what you're good at and what like makes you happy and like what, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so I think with the whole business thing, I really just, I, I consume a lot. Like I, I'm on, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, anybody that's some, anybody, if somebody will retweet something for somebody, like something wise on Twitter, all right, I'm going to start following them. You know, like I, if somebody posted like an article somewhere, it's like, all right, I'm going to start, I'm going to check out what else this person's written. You know, it's just, honestly, it's like a lot, a lot of reading, a lot of blog posts. I remember when I remember why Combinator did their like startup, you know, startup, a startup school thing where they put the videos online of, of you know, those, uh, those uh, classes that they were running that would uh, kind of go, you know, basically hour to hour through like kind of basically build a startup. And that was, that was really useful. I mean, I consumed that. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, especially today, Jesus, 2019, like there's just so many resources online to really like figure most of the hard things out yourself, not to mention all the pre-built stuff that makes, you know, banking, for example, Oh my God, things like banking were like for, you know, for me and my co-founder were like, ah, but now there's great startups and great, you know, great, uh, great resources for making a lot of that, you know, taxes and lawyery stuff like, you know, uh, easier uh, to for sort of just works. I mean, just works for like just HR purposes makes our lives like a million times easier with like W2s and blah, blah, blah. It's a totally different space. I mean, for like it, it is a beautiful and not, not to mention now we have like the no code movement or, you know, there really are very little excuses at this point for somebody who has an idea to try to build it on their own. 
most, I would, you know, I don't know how, what the percentage is, but, you know, my guess is like maybe 30% of ideas are probably possible to be executed without necessarily having to, you know, go out and find something or someone that we can do it for you. But yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a golden era to, to build things online and there's almost more information than you can consume. It's not, it's not exactly a problem if you don't come into this knowing exactly what to do because you can learn it all on the job as you're doing it. And there's a ton of resources that can help you. Um, I want to get a sense of where you're at today with one second every day in terms of just numbers. Like how many people are working at your company? How many users do you have? How much revenue are you doing? Yeah. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've kind of been like, uh, you know, we've kind of been like doubling year to year, uh, you know, like, uh, to, to some degree, I guess. So we, new year's is our biggest time of the year by far. We got, you know, the amount of, so like people tend to start one second every day when it's a birthday, when they just got married, when they just had a baby, like, like milestones in their life. And new year's is the one thing that like, it's every, like, just like everyone has every, it's new year's for everyone, not, you know, not just like people getting married and whatnot. So we get so many people sharing their one second every day video of their, you know, year in review, essentially on social media every year that every year has been gargantually bigger than the last. So you know, a couple of years ago, we were like, you know, we, we topped out at like number 17 on the app store. The year after that, we hit number three. The year after that, we were the number one paid app on the app store. It was like, like 2000, 2018. We were the number one paid app on the app store the entire first week of 2018. And then at the time, we were still a paid app. And then we made it free uh, at the beginning, of, at the end of last year, about exactly a year ago uh, today, probably. We made the app free finally because we built a subscription tier that allows us to monetize now uh, with you know, power users and extra features as opposed, as opposed to just putting the entire app behind a paywall, which was a, it was a great way to, for us to like uh, bootstrap, but it was never like a long-term strategy, obviously to just like, uh, you know, we wanted to be able to give a, have a version of the app that allowed anybody to use, to, to do at least the basic version of, of one second every day. And then, you know, this year, by, by making the app free at the beginning of this year on January 1st, like it was like literally, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, one second every day at the end of uh, New Year's Day. And I think this year we'll knock on wood. I'm pretty sure we'll we'll crush them. And then I feel like TikTok we might not beat, but we'll see because uh, TikTok's still relatively new, getting a lot of new users all the time. So that's, you know, we, we, we've been on this like year to year. Uh, the, you know, a lot of our growth is also coming from the fact that it's uh, it's because of native sharing on you know, video sharing on Facebook and Instagram and, you know, and, and, and other places like, like Twitter, people are sharing their monthly kind of videos now at the first of every month they'll share like oh this was my november 2019 and 30 to 60 seconds and so that people see that people download it every we get a spike every month you know on the app store and that's been going on for like almost two years now and that's where a lot of like our consistent growth have been happening before that it was like kind of almost like new year's was like the exclusive giant spike you know like in 2018 we made two million in revenue the year before that we made a million in revenue the year before that we made five hundred thousand in revenue the year before that we made like two hundred and fifty thousand in revenue and so it's literally been like just a steady you know, like 2x per year growth. And then th- and because this year we're, we got a couple of million downloads because now we were free, like we have no idea what's about to happen with, you know, New Year's in a couple of weeks. It's uh, in the first two years of the history of the app as a paid app uh, on iOS, we had 2 million downloads. So like in six years from like launch to making the app free, we had 2 million downloads. And now this year is a free app. We've had over 2 million Crazy. downloads. Crazy. So uh, the power of going free, huge, and, and we're doing well as subscribers. Like we're, we're you know, we're, we're, we're picking up enough subscribers to, to subsidize the free customers. And obviously we'll be, 
adding more features next year for Pro so that, you know, hopefully we can continue to build value for our customers. And and for us, like, you know, we really want to, we never want to have advertising in the app. We never want to, we never want to screw with anybody's private information. We, we want to, we want to build a social media kind of experience that like we wish existed. You know, there's so many incentives that are misaligned with current social media models. And we want to realign those incentives as best as we can. We're, we've started to build our, our social kind of our version of social that we think is really has the potential to really, you know, ha- have us, uh, you know, really grow in, 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 in a far greater way than we've ever grown before. We and for that, we finally decided to raise money for the first time this year, but we did it without venture capital. We, we, our lead investor was Bryce Roberts of NDBC, who I know has been on your show. Yep. You know, that seemed like that when, you know, I was paying attention to that for a couple of years. And, and when we finally decided, Oh, okay. Like, this social thing we're about to take a bite on is going to require way more, you know, engineering power than we have right now. And so we grew, you know, we were 13 at like in September and like within two weeks we were 20. We hired seven humans. We had a company we do, we were an entirely remote company from all over the world. We uh, went to a company, we, we did a company retreat like within a month of, of every, of the new hires in Mexico. We spent the week together, just like, like just syncing up and, that was amazing. We do this twice twice a year. We do every six months. We do a, comp- a company wide retreat where we fly everyone in from all over the world and, and somewhere. And and yeah, so now we're focused on. We have this you know huge New Year's coming up that we don't know what, what's going to happen. But you know, twenty twenty is really about finally uh, using these resources that we've gained with from the from the non venture raise within DBC to really scale up the social part of the app. I think about social media a lot. Any hackers is not a social media app. It's a community. Uh, but it's pretty similar. And because it's owned by Stripe and because I don't have any real uh, mission to generate revenue or anything like that, indie hackers will never be stuffed with ads. You're kind of in the same boat because you're profitable. You're actually charging your users to use your app. And that allows you to take, I guess, a more thoughtful approach to social media if you decide to make your app social. But right now it's not. When I make my videos in one second every day, it's basically just for me or for friends if I want to post it to YouTube or something. But there's no kind of social feed uh, that's part of the app. What's your vision for how you can do that in a better way? Yeah. What's your vision for a better form of social media? Yeah, we we raised uh, NDBC uh, was our lead investor, and then we we brought in a whole bunch of other investors as well who are aligned with the NDBC model that uh, isn't you know forcing us into just like getting raising another round you know in eighteen months, right? And that was the thing we were really looking to avoid because it may not make sense. Like we may there's a, there's a whole spectrum of potential things that could happen to us. Like if we're if all of a sudden, like, you know, we're getting crazy downloads every day, whatever, like, all right, like, yeah, okay, maybe this, this is huge. And we have to download, we have, we have to raise more capital in which case we just, the note converts from the NDBC note just converts, uh, which is great. But if that doesn't come to pass, we can, we can still give all the investors a really great return higher than the average return of an angel investor. You know, we brought in Ernest Capital that, you know, Tyler has been an amazing, amazing, you know, uh, partner for us. And us too, which is, has a venture arm. They, you know, created Monument Valley on the App Store famously, but, you know, they have all, all sorts of other, uh, uh, you know, uh, apps and, and, and companies that out of the UK. And we, we brought in a bunch of people that we were really happy that they, they really aligned with, with us and what we were trying to do. And specifically, we also, you know, set out to bring in people who we've long looked like uh, envied and, and, and looked up to, you know, Buffer, Joel from Buffer is one of our investors. And, you know, Buffer has been a company that we've been, you know, very, you know, we've 
always been, you know, to some degree, uh, wanting to emulate and, and as you know, they're, and they're at 90, I think, employees or something like that now. And, you know, we're, we're at 20. And so there's just so much that we can take away from how transparent they are and how much they write about how they've scaled to that, to, to that, that we, we try to do. Um, so we, you know, we painted a picture to all these investors on how we were looking to approach, you know, social media. And, and for us, it starts with the incentives, right? Like if our incentive, if like, if social media, if, if the way that a social media company is making money is because they're basically trying to get you to scroll as much as possible every day, like, because the more you scroll, the more ads they can show you like that, that seems like, that, I don't like, I'd be happy paying to not be, you know, bamboozled into that, <laughs> that way of, of consuming media, you know, like I engagement, I, engagement, 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 engagement. Yeah. And, and, you know, what we want to do is like, how, how can we give you like, for us, it's just about bringing you the maximum amount of value in the least amount of time possible. Like, how do we give you like, you know, what I, you know, how do we give you like exactly what you wish was what you wanted to consume per day? And if we, let's just say we could do it in five minutes, like, instead of 45 minutes, right? Where you're just like, uh, just mindlessly scrolling, right? Like, and again, I mean, I get a lot of value out of Twitter. I get a lot of value out of Facebook, but I'm also like hyper aware of like the, you know, vortex that I can fall under where, you know, we, we end up scrolling, you know, an hour and just like, Oh my God, what, what, what happened? And, you know, I didn't really get any value out of like the 55 minutes on the other end of the first five minutes. Right. And so for us, like it starts out with really making sure that our incentives are aligned with what's best for people and not what's best for, advertisers so i think that that that's one of our core things the other core thing is you know by actually charging people or at least a subset of people for hopefully for for something valuable then that also makes it so that we're never thinking about selling people's i mean we get emails from you know people who want us oh like just plug us into your app and we'll get this data and we'll pay you it's like no we never want to do that we also are very interested in we're not really interested in being uh like uh, being acquired it's not like a goal and Frankly, like it's, uh, we feel like a sense of stewardship to making sure that, you know, people have been logging private moments of their life for seven years in some cases. I don't, I don't know if I could sleep at night if I just like handed that off to like Facebook tomorrow, right? Like, and so, you know, for us, it's like, how do we make sure that the business model is there so that we can always have the best intentions for the customer's mind? Everything kind of starts from there. And a lot of what we're thinking about with terms of social media is obviously, a lot of the things that are the social media companies are already starting to do, right? Like the likes and the the, the metrics that like kind of skew things in, in directions that, you know, aren't necessarily healthy for mental health and, and, and stuff like that. And so, yeah, the, the initial idea for, for what we were building, we called it social media zero. And the idea was essentially, how do we give you a social media feed that is finite, that allows you to like get the value that you were looking to get and then it's like, goodbye, you're done, go live That's your it. life, enjoy your day. How do we not give you the itch to come back and check your feed all day, every day, nonstop? Like, cause that is, in my opinion, at least for me, that like thing that really consumes me. And like, I don't like how I feel like I need to check my Instagram to see if I, somebody replied to the thing, whatever, you know, it's like, it's stuff like that, that just, uh, it's not healthy. I don't like it. Like, I don't feel good about it. Like, I, I wish I could just like, imagine if you could finish your Instagram feed, right? Just like, oh, like, imagine there's no ads. So you finish it faster. Imagine if like, you know, you read the, you, you get, you know, one thing that we're adamant about with, with our feed is um, ba- batch notifications. So like, I don't need a notification. Like, 
feels like every day, you know, in every way, shape, or form, Instagram tries to get me to like turn on notifications. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, why do I need to know that somebody liked my photo instantly? Like most things don't require an instant notification. Like I don't need to, like, that's something that I can just get late. Like, so a, a lot of what we're, some of the stuff that some of the rules are playing around with, it's like, yeah, like all notifications, you should just get one notification per day that gives you all your notifications. You get them, you see them, you, you're done with them, go back to living your life, you know? So, so we're coming at social media from all these, you know, there's a lot more to it than that, but you know, we're, and we're still experimenting with some of these models and we may change our mind about some of them and, and we're, we're you know our alpha is designed to be a little bit loose and nimble so that we can we can test out a couple of different ways to do things but the approach is realign things between what's best for our company and what's best for people and remove all middlemen and all other exterior forces and let's make sure that you know what we're building is something that brings value to people without all the baggage that can come on the other side I mean, you're optimizing for the wrong metrics essentially right and you're kind of perfectly situated to do that because already you've created a habit in people to come back once per day, record your one second video every day. That's kind of a great place to get your, to get your fix, to figure out what your friends and family are doing. And then that's it. Yeah. And you know, I think one of the ways we're look, we feel that we're, we're well suited for this is that we've been a private experience first and foremost, you know, since we launched our sharing is optional, uh, a gargantuan amount of our customers never share. And that's our superpower. Our superpower is that like, this is where you can log moments of your life that you never want on the internet. You know, the thing that I get over and over again from our customers is that we fill in the gaps to the things you would never share on social media. So like Instagram is like, oh, I went on this trip and um, look at me with the, you know, like, it's just highlights. But like, you know, our lives are made up of way more than just like the best things we ever did. Like I, my one second every day video is filled with my worst days. It's filled with like moments that like, to you, like if you were to watch them, like you're like, I guess Caesar just sat on his desk working. And it's like, <laughs> you know, like, which is a lot often, but, you know, I'm very mindful about like picking specific things about that day on that work day. So, you know, it's like, an, you know, it's a, it's getting that email from Apple that we we're going to be part of the best of 2019, you know, like uh, the other day, like, it's like, oh, like, boom, like that's my second of the day. God, Cause I didn't do anything but just sit here all day and work. But here's the notable thing of my day that I, you know, I'm going to, it's just an email. It's just me recording the screen on my monitor. But like in six years or two years, I'm going to look back on that and be like, oh, like it means nothing to anybody but me. And that's a really important part that's missing right now from the problem with people journaling using Instagram and, 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 and Facebook as a means to like, like keep a journal or a diary is that you're only posting the things you're willing to have other people look at. And like our lives are made up of things that are only meaningful to us that don't mean squat to other people, you know? And so we give people a space to log moments of their life that they know are meaningful to them and no one else necessarily. And I think that that's, if we can start, if we can build some, we can build a social media experience where there's essentially a Venn diagram of moments of that, that you are willing to share with us with a with not a thousand people, but like a closer group of people that are really important to you, then I feel like that that's gonna be our sweet spot with what we're trying to build is what is the stuff that you that you meant to be private that you are willing to share with people that you trust. And so that that's kind of where how we're beginning our approach with with some of the social stuff. It's interesting if you take kind of a bird's eye view of how things have progressed. If you look at like the 50s, for example, everybody was all about fast food. McDonald's was new. 
And that was just a huge thing. And then, you know, our generation has been a little bit more intelligent with what we consume. There's a backlash. We don't want unhealthy food that's killing us. And I assume the same thing is going to happen with, with social media. We've, had, we've got kind of like the phase one where it's all about engagement. It's all about addiction. Uh, and then we start to become more conscious about the fact that, hey, this isn't exactly healthy. And how do we keep the good stuff and get, away, you know, get rid of the bad stuff? So it's interesting to see the role that you and others will play in kind of this phase two of more thoughtful social media. And it's also, I think, fascinating to see your own personal transition as a founder. A lot of times people wonder, uh, you know, what's my mission supposed to be if I start a company? And I think the answer is that it changes. Usually you get started for yourself. You want to build something for yourself, something that's useful. Uh, you want to change your life in some way. And then if things are successful and they work out, your goals kind of evolve. And so you've gone from, hey, I want to be able to you know, remember, remember my trips in a way that's easy and helpful for me, to, hey, other people should do this, to, hey, you know, eventually, how do I improve social media for an entire generation of people? What has that transition been like for you as a founder, and what do you look forward to doing in the future? Honestly, like, I, I really come from it from an angle of like, I really have some convictions on how I think what I'm, I think might would be a really good version of social media that, you know, maybe maybe it's like the perfect version of social media for, you know, 50 million people and not a, a couple of billion, right? Like maybe there's not one size fits all for social media. Like I have a vision in my head for what I think a lot of, in the same way that I thought, hey, this one second every day thing is really helping me. And I think there's enough other people out there who would agree. I, I'm coming at the social media angle that we're working on in a sim very similar fashion. Like I, is it for 3 billion people, for 7 billion people? Maybe not. But if like we make something that is like what 50 million people out there want and we're profitable and we can, you know, we, 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 we can always ensure that we're, you know, you know, and innovating and, and, and doing what's best for, for our customers. Like, I feel like that's a huge win. <laughs> um, and that's one of the reasons that we thought NDVC was, 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 was all aligned for us to like not continue to force ourselves into things that didn't really necessarily make sense. If, it, if, if like, you know, I want it to exist, it doesn't have to be us, you know, like I'm, I have my convictions and we're going to build it and we're going to, hopefully it works. But, you know, if like in 10 years, 20 other companies tackle this better version of social media and some of them win and, and luckily for us, like we're not, we're relatively in a position right now where like if we, even if we don't succeed, we're still probably going to be a growing profitable business, not maybe not growing as fast as we, we would prefer. I think it is really important for humanity for some of these better options to exist. And if they exist, I'll be, I'm, I'm, it doesn't have to be me. Like I'm, I'm not driven by ego. I just, uh, I just think that there's uh there's a lot of, I, I want as many people to take a crack at, at building a, building a better version of social media. And that, you know, that drives me more than, than it having to be me. You know, it, it, it's just something that I think uh, even just the market forces are just going to make it happen because I think, you know, the more and more these publicly traded companies are optimizing for things that are in this. I mean, my Instagram is basically like ads at this point. I mean, I just scroll more ads than it's more like every three posts is an ad. It's, it's just it is just ads. And and they're you know, frankly, really good at targeting me. Like I, I am afraid to like just Google things sometimes because I'm like, <laughs> I got to go into incognito mode because then I'm just going to get targeted for this, like nonstop for the next three weeks. Like yeah. it's, I, I don't, it, I don't, that's a, 
where, how do we get here? This is just like not how I want to live my life, man. Thinking about like, I can't, I shouldn't, got to go into cognito mode to like Google this because otherwise it's just like my, all my, the, everything, every ad I'm going to see is about going to be about this. I mean, you know, uh, who do I got, who do, who do I have to pay a subscription fee to like not be targeted for ads? Uh, universe, you know, everywhere, you know, it's just, um, I think everything's evolving, everything's maturing and hopefully one way or another, we're, we're going to be in a better place, you know, in, a, in, in, you know, in a decade with how people consume and how people are aware of, you know, the, the pros and cons of social media, essentially. Well, listen, Caesar, you've, uh, you've been through a lot. You, uh, had a successful Kickstarter and broke records there. You gave a Ted talk. You've been, uh, featured in movies You're competing with Instagram and TikTok <laughs> on the app store. Uh, but you came from pretty humble beginnings. Uh, and that's basically where most listeners are at right now. What's your advice for somebody who's just considering starting a business and, you know, might not have any successes under their belt quite yet? I've always been somebody who had side projects. I get an idea. Somehow I become really passionate about an idea. And I start just thinking about how do I make that idea happen? Some things are just obviously too big or too this or too that. But you try to, you know, you try to find that Venn diagram of like what I am actually capable, um, I have control over. And it always leads to something. You know, you never know. You never know what what's going to come of it. And so I would say that if there's anything that that's been lingering in your head for like you can't stop thinking about it right like that's basically me it's just like if i can't stop thinking about it i have to start doing something about it then there really is just no like no limit of resources online to start figuring out what's the next step what's the next step there's that famous you know how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time i used to i gave a i gave a tedx talk like a couple like two years after i gave my main stage talk i called it um I forgot what it was called, but basically it was just like at a local one and near where I grew up. And they just asked me to speak. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll go live for 10 minutes. And I basically, I gave a talk called, uh, um, it was about, it was called divide, divide, divide. <laughs> and the idea was I didn't know how to ride a bike. I grew up ashamed that I did not know how to ride a bike and didn't tell anybody. It was kept a secret. If somebody was like, hey, let's grab these bikes. I'd be like, oh, I can't. My knee hurts. Like I would lie just because I was too embarrassed to say, I don't know how to ride a bike. And it was eating, uh, eating at me for a long time. And eventually I'm like, I gotta do something about this. I can't, I, I'm so jealous of all these people who commute around New York on bicycles. And this is like, you know, 2007. And I thought, how do I do, all right, where do I start? Where do I start? I need a bike. <laughs> so I Googled folding bikes and I bought a folding bike through the internet, like a really cheap one that I could put it, throw in the back of my car and I could drive to the middle of nowhere out in the boonies where no one could see me. <laughs> just practice in private. And I would just, yeah, I would just fall and fall and fall all on my own because I was too embarrassed to even ask someone to like teach me how to ride a bike. I was just like, I'm just going to buy a folding bike that I can put in the back of my car. I'm going to drive out to where no one could see me, like, like a giant parking lot, empty parking lot. And I would just do, I did that like three nights until I was like going in a straight line and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Like, this is amazing, unbelievable. And eventually I got, I worked up the courage to just go pick a bike lane in New York and just go in a straight line. Brakes, straight line, that's it. Brakes, straight line. Eventually I made a turn. Eventually I made another turn. And within a year, I was that prick going through cars in New York, you know, was like, <laughs> just like going as fast as I can, going through red lights because I was just like became... I just fell in love with biking and I just couldn't stop doing it. Right. And, and like, and the reason I say that story is like, I had to, it was a goal for me to bike around New York city and be and like, and like bike. But I, 
didn't know what to do. And it's, I had to divide the problem until the what was left was so easy, I couldn't not do it. And what I got left with was I have to buy a bike. Like, I, that's easy. That's not about riding bicycles, not anything. It's just like, I got to buy a, a bike. And once it just got to that, then, all right, now there was a bike sitting at my place. I was like, all right, what's the next tiny little thing I need to do? I was like, all right, I need to throw it in the back of my car. The next tiny little thing I need to do is drive to the middle of nowhere. Like, I just needed to take it. I needed to divide the steps until they were too tiny to not do them. That's gotten me through a lot of big picture things that I didn't know were, like, I literally started by Googling, how do I make an app? Like, I just didn't know. And so I was like, where do I start? What's the first thing I need to do? I need to Google some answers. Google, you know? And then uh, eventually it's like, I need devs. Where do I, do? what's a tiny little thing I can do today to get them all ball, the ball to move? It's like, all right, I'm going to email three dev shops and I'm going to see if I can get a meeting, right? Like tiny, I, that's a 15 minute thing, right? Three dev shops, three info at that dev shop. That's basically everything. It's just divide, divide, divide until it's too easy not to do it. There's almost no number of baby steps you can't take to get to someplace meaningful. Correct. That you can always keep dividing until something is just too easy. Like, well, listen, Caesar, you, that's that's course. that's great advice. It's inspirational. <laughs> I need to remember <laughs> that myself. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time doing this monster episode with me. I, as I mentioned earlier, am a already addicted to one second every day. I love it. Uh, hopefully some listeners will find some value in the app as well. Can you tell everybody where they can go to learn more about what you're up to, how they can reach out to you if you're open to that? Yeah, uh, the website is 1sc.co, but one second every day at everything. Uh, the app is called what it is. <laughs> and uh, I'm Caesar Kuriyama at all the things. I'm pretty easy to uh, to poke and, and prod. So if anyone ever has any anything that they want to I don't necessarily reply right away, but I do eventually get to it. And I, I do try my best to be helpful. A lot of people, you know, help me get to this point. And um, I'm always trying to pay it forward, even if even if it takes me a while to get to it. You know, I just, I just wrote someone on Instagram, like a Bible uh, based on a message of something they were working on that they, they didn't know how to move forward. Um, and I don't know how I, I that was one of the, the perfect example. I meant to just I was like, I'm just going to get started on this. And, I, you know, I t- took the tiny baby stuff like, I'm just going to bullet point this. And I just ended up writing the whole thing. And I just, you know, spent 30 minutes just like, oh, you know what? I'm just on a stream of thought now. And that's what happens most of the time. It's like you divide, divide, divide into something so easy. But once you get started, you just like get excited and keep going. Yeah. My full name, Cesar Kuriyama. One second every day, we're at all the things. All right. Thanks again, Cesar. Corlin, thank you so much. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you reached out to Cesar and let him know. He is at Cesar Kuriyama on Twitter. And also, if you're interested in hearing my thoughts on the episode, subscribe to the Indie Hackers podcast newsletter. You can find that at indiehackers.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.